Hi, and welcome to our second podcast all about space weather, the ever-changing conditions in space caused by our unpredictable and temperamental star. I'm Rosa Jesse, coming to you from ESA's ESOC, Mission Control and Operations Centre in Germany. And in this episode, we'll find out about a very unique mission, the Lagrange mission, whose job it will be to provide solar warnings for when the sun erupts. We'll also find out what would happen if a huge solar storm struck Earth today. And stay tuned till the end of the podcast, when we'll listen to the sound of space weather itself. First off, I spoke to Yussi Luntama, ESA's head of space weather, and I asked him how he first got interested in the mysterious phenomena of the weather in space. It's a long story, actually. How much time do we have? Um, the, um, there are two reasons. One is that I saw uh, space weather when I was really small, in the late 60s, which tells you how old I am, uh, that um, I saw the aurora for the first time. And uh, when I saw it, I rushed home to look at the uh, encyclopedia of uh, what aurora is. And the encyclopedia said, we don't really know what's causing the aurora. And that was late 60s. So, And where were you when you saw it? I was uh, in my home village in Finland, uh, southern Finland. So uh, I haven't actually checked, but it must have been a, ge- a relatively big geomantic storm at that time to see it so far south, even in Finland. And now, do you know more about what causes the aurora? Have you been successful in your mission? Uh, well, I think as, as a mankind, uh, we know now scientifically what's causing the aurora. We know more or less uh, uh, the process, uh, even though there are still scientific challenges. We know that the aurora that we see is caused by electrons that are accelerated from the tail of the magnetic field of the Earth. They are... Coming towards the Earth, uh, they impact uh, with the uh, atoms and molecules of the upper atmosphere, and that uh, creates a uh, a light in the same way as in a neon tube. So the process is the same. What causes the acceleration, how exactly it works, and what triggers it, this is still something that we don't fully understand today. Mm -hmm. And how much warning, then, do we have at the moment of extreme events at the Sun before they reach Earth? That is the critical thing. At the moment, we can give a warning in an extreme case only maybe 15 hours uh, before the impact because um, the solar physics still contains a lot of mysteries uh, that we don't fully understand. For example, the onsets of these uh, coronal mass ejections that are causing the worst uh, impacts on the Earth. We don't exactly know uh, how that happens uh, and uh, we cannot forecast exactly when that will happen. So basically, we can see when something has happened. We can observe these events, and then we can make a forecast of how quickly they reach the Earth. But in the worst case, we know that uh, the uh, time window that we have uh, between the onset of the event and the uh, beginning of the impact is only about 15 hours. And how would the Lagrange mission help Well, Lagrange hopefully will give us information that helps us to forecast these events so we could actually have more lead time than the 15 hours. Uh, And at the same time, when something has happened, we can see it uh, from Lagrange mission and we can also monitor the propagation of the event. Uh, So we can see basically the space between the Sun and the Earth uh, from the Lagrange uh, L5 uh, point and uh, then that gives us a much better handle on how big the impact might be. And can you tell us more about this fifth Lagrange point? 
Where is it and why is it special? Fifth Lagrange point is one of those stable points in space where between two massive bodies, Sun is the totally massive bodies in this case, Earth is the slightly less massive body, there are uh, points of equilibrium where the, uh, the gravitational forces of these bodies, they compensate each other. Uh, and so we can put the spacecraft there and it stays there with a small effort. And there are five Lagrange points between the uh, Sun and the Earth. And the Lagrange point number five is 150 million kilometers behind the Earth on Earth orbit uh, around the Sun. So it's kind of a perfect triangle. So from Earth to Lagrange point L5, it's 150 million kilometers. Uh, from Lagrange uh, L5 point to the Sun is 150 million kilometers. And then from Sun back to Earth is 150 million kilometers. From this position, it gets a special kind of view of the sun that we don't have now. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Uh, in addition to um, being able to monitor the space between the sun and the earth from the side, which gives us a perfect view on the propagation of these coronal ejections into plasma clouds towards the earth, we can also see the solar disk before it's visible to the earth. So the sun is rotating relatively fast. Uh, only 27 days, one full rotation of the uh, of the sun at the equatorial region, uh, and then it's turning from the L5 point perspective towards the Earth. So we kind of see behind the horizon, and that means that we can see the solar active regions, the regions in the sun that can cause these massive eruptions uh, before they are visible to the Earth, and that gives us additional lead time to give warnings that something bad may be coming towards our direction. And with these warnings, what can people do? What can spacecraft operators and uh, aeroplane people do? Well, basically, um, it's uh, it's very similar to uh, when you have a storm warning uh, on the Earth uh, from the Meteorological Institutes. You prepare yourself. You, uh, you make sure that your system, whether it's a spacecraft uh, or uh, uh, aviation, um, is as ready as possible to continuance which are disturbed, which are unusual. Uh, you make sure that you have the right people available who can react when something is happening. And in some cases, you can also set up your system into a, uh, a position or status which is more robust against these impacts. So you can make sure that your system is not going to be damaged by the space weather. So huge amounts of data will be raining in on this new spacecraft and it'll have insights into the sun that we have never had before. But for us non-experts, the Space Weather Service Network will give all of this information some meaning. Can you explain a bit more about what this network is? Well, this network is actually, it's our way of utilizing the expertise that we have in Europe. So in Europe, um, there are many groups, uh, companies, uh, university laboratories who have understanding of the uh, space weather, the solar physics, the uh, interplanetary physics, propagation of the effects and the events and the uh, interaction. And we have, we're utilizing them in this network so that the they will actually do uh, the analysis of the data that we uh, collect with our satellites and they are also providing the end user services so they tell the end users so for example the operators of the commercial aviation uh, what seems to be happening uh, what the potential impact uh, of these events is going to be uh, and how long these events are going to last 
So they're like a translation service for Lagrange. Well, they are uh, they are translation. Uh, they are scientific uh, understanding. Uh, they are data processing. Uh, they they contain the capability to, uh, to turn the uh, uh, measurements that we get from the satellites into something that the end users can understand and can use to plan their operations to avoid the impact. Mm-hmm. And Space Nineteen Plus is coming up. And the fate of Lagrange will be decided. How are you feeling? I'm optimistic. Uh, I feel confident that uh, the European states uh, understand the needs and the benefits that we have from this mission. And uh, I'm confident that uh, they will make the right decisions in the meeting so that we can uh, can, uh, proceed with the preparation of the mission so that we can get uh, it launched uh, as, as soon as possible. Thank you very much, Yussi. And good luck. Thank you. Now, back to astronomy journalist and author Stuart Clark, who we spoke to in the first episode. He explained what would happen if a large solar storm struck Earth today. Can you tell us what would happen on Earth? What would we experience now with all of our new technology if a Carrington-like event happened today? Yes, this has been um, a focus of considerable work um, for the last uh, decade in the space where the community is. And it's really very interesting because from a period of time um, when we started to realise just how big character flow was, there was a lot of doomsday scenarios out there that uh, you know, all the lights would go up or satellites would stop working. Uh, and as the years have progressed, we started to refine that view. And so now, what we can definitely say is there would be a significant disruption, but um, probably only for the short to the the mid-term. There could be uh, a sort of a longer tail thing that need fixing, Um, but hopefully we would um, sort of get through it. Um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be easy, but it wouldn't be this sort of civilization, um, a crumbling scenario <laughs> that we first um, talked about about 10 years ago. Well, that's the systems good. that are mostly affected would be the satellites. And so we rely on the satellites now for navigation and for communication. And that would be disrupted. You could put the satellites into safe mode to protect them. But then, of course, they wouldn't be useful in a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you try to operate the satellite through one of these storms, um, a lot of the newer satellites that are being launched now have some level of space weather protection in them, such shielding uh, that's put in to try and protect the, the vulnerable electronics and the computers. Well, we've never really tested those on the further side of character, mm-hmm. so we don't quite know whether they would be good enough. We hope they would be. But there are other things that um, you, you couldn't uh, really shield against. So one of the things that we've realised with space weather is that it, it blinds the star trackers of satellites. So each satellite now um, holds its position and orientation in space by having little telescopes um, that, that, that look at the stars. And the radiation storm that comes with these uh, space weather events can sometimes blind those star trackers. And what happens then is that the spacecraft 
doesn't know where it is or how it's oriented. So it goes into a safe mode. The science behind exactly why the sun goes from these uh, periods of 11 years of activity and 11 years of relative peace, it's not really understood, is it? No, it is so vital. It's, um, I mean, it's really fascinating. So, uh, discovered again in the 19th century, uh, we have this 11-year um, sequence in which the sunspot numbers go from very few, and what sunspots there are tend to appear at higher latitudes on the sun. And then, you know, five or six years later, um, we have the sunspot maximum. And now you have a lot more sunspots appearing um, on a regular basis, and they're all appearing much lower towards the equatorial regions of the sun. And then you pass solar maximum, and you start to get into um, a declining phase of activity where the number of sunspots starts to dwindle. Um, and then often they disappear for a period of time, um, and then they re- the sunspots reappear at the beginning of a new cycle, up in the higher latitudes once more. Um, but the magnetic polarity of the sunspot um, has reversed. And so it goes through this other 11-year cycle, starts again, and the polarity of the sunspot returns to it was before. So this is such a peculiar kind of behavior. But we have lots of ideas and models even of this dynamo. Um, but the details of it um, what triggers it, um, how it sustains, and what makes each cycle different in its average level of activity. Those are still very key areas of ongoing research. Mm, fascinating. Well, now we're in the middle of a solar minimum. Does that mean that we're pretty safe from any huge flares? Well, this is really interesting. Um, because I mentioned the average activity of the sun, and since about 1950 or so, um, moving into the sort of the first decade of the 21st century, the solar activity has been extremely high, the average solar activity. And now we seem to be moving into a situation whereby the average solar activity is, is much reduced. Now you'd think this was a really good thing. And yet, when we look back at the, the sunspot record that we have, um, there's not much flare. The character flare, for example, took place in a time of relatively low average solar activity. So it could be that these big flares um, build up in some way in the times of low average activity. We don't know that for certain. That's just complete speculation. Mm. Um, but it appears if we're moving into a time when the sun is less active than it has been um, in the latter half of the 20th century. And so we wait to see um, what this means. So it could be storing up a huge a huge potential flare for us. We're, we're, we're running the experiment, or nature is running that experiment for us, even as we speak. <laughs> um, and compared to other stars, uh, I understand ours is reasonably tame. Yes, it is. And this has been a big surprise. So we can measure the solar activity on other stars in a number of different ways. One is to look for the X-rays that's coming from the flares. So we can't see the surface 
done in detail to count the sunspots or star spots as they would be on there. But we can we we can look at the stars and see and measure the X-rays that come from them. So these can give us an indication of how much flare activity there is. Mm-hmm. And the other way is that when spacecraft look um, for planets around other stars, they look for the drop in brightness of the star that's caused by the planet's um, silhouette. So they're measuring the brightness of the stellar surface, and they too see fluctuations that are based on solar or stellar activity. And both of those measures show us that um, the sun is, is relatively quiescent. There's a form of star called the red dwarf star, for example, that suffers our stellar flares hundreds or a thousand times larger uh, than the solar flares that we have here on the sun. Wow. So it may be that we're just, we're just really quite lucky with the sun. Uh, I'm relieved to hear that, although I would love to see some of these incredible auroras that reach all the way down to the equator. Oh, if we could see one of those, that would be um, that would be quite a moment, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because all the technology stays safe. Um, and just finally, when it comes to future explorers to the Moon and Mars, can you tell us a bit about how we can best protect them from solar flares? Yeah, so our biggest protection against the solar flares is the Earth's magnetic field and then the atmosphere of the Earth. That's what protects us here at at the ground um, from the direct effects of the of the solar weather. Um, if you obviously go into space and you go to the moon and you go to Mars, um, well then you're you're out of the Earth's magnetic field, you're above the Earth's atmosphere. And those two worlds don't really have um, the same level of protection. Mars has a very thin atmosphere, um, hardly any magnetic field to speak of, and the moon has no atmosphere and no magnetic field. So you will have to take precautions um, to shield astronauts against these space weather uh, events. And perhaps one of the best things that you can do is work out a system whereby you bury your habitat underneath um, the ground, so the ground offers you the protection. Another thing that you could do is to put the water tanks um, around the skin of the spacecraft or on the top of the habitat, because water's uh, pretty dense, so it's uh, pretty good absorbing the radiation. Or you could simply just um, build uh, a small, well-shielded room somewhere um, that everyone went to um, when a solar storm was forecast, and just uh, just sit it out. So, it seems the further we venture out from Earth, first with satellites in orbit, and then with explorers to the Moon and Mars, the more space weather has the chance to disrupt, destroy, or even harm us. Thanks very much to Yussi Luntama and Stuart Clark for joining me on this episode all about solar warnings. Now, one final thing, what does space weather actually sound like? ESA's cluster mission has recorded the magnetic waves generated in the magnetic foreshock above Earth. This is the first region of our planet's magnetic environment that particles from the Sun encounter. This recording was made during calm space weather conditions. This audio file contains a sonification of the data, where sounds are obtained by transforming the frequencies of these magnetic waves into audible signals. 
Now, the same region, but during a solar storm. And if you find this relaxing, do keep listening. But for now, I'll say goodbye, and thank you for joining us.